welcome to another edition of Sunday Dive. I'm Katie Patrizio, and today we're talking about the readings for the third Sunday of Lent, March 20th, 2022. Current events are the topic of our Lord's interactions in our gospel today. Some bearers of bad news bring him word of the slaughter of Galileans by Pontius Pilate. Reading the hearts of his interlocutors, Jesus warns that the tragedy was not brought on by victims' sins and that if his listeners do not repent, the same tragedy will befall them. We'll take a cue from Cyril of Alexandria, who sees deeper meaning in the image of blood mingled with sacrifice, and we'll make the case that the figure of the vine dresser is none other than Christ himself. Welcome back, everyone, to Sunday Dive. I want to give you a big thanks for being so patient with me the last few weeks. I've been uh, so very busy at work uh, at my parish, getting things ready for Lent. And then we had our parish mission right after um, Ash Wednesday, essentially. I think it's all a blur, but um, basically I've been really busy. And so I haven't been putting out any new episodes. And so I'm just really grateful for all your patience and understanding. But we are back today to look at the readings for the third Sunday of Lent. Um, And the readings for the third, excuse me, the third Sunday of Lent put us in Luke chapter 13, uh, verses one through nine. So let's begin as usual, reading our gospel together. I'm reading from the uh, revised standard version. There were some present at that very time who told him of the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. And he answered them, do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered thus? I tell you, no, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Of those 18 upon whom the tower in Siloam fell and killed them, Do you think that they were worse offenders than all the others who dwelt in Jerusalem? I tell you, no, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. And he told this parable, a man had a fig tree planted in his vineyard and he came seeking fruit on it and found none. And he said to the vine dresser, lo, these three years I have come seeking fruit on this fig tree and I find none cut it down. Why should it use up the ground? And he answered him, let it alone, sir, this year also, till I dig about it and put on manure. And if it bears fruit next year, well and good, but if not, you can cut it down. Luke chapter 13, verses one through nine, our gospel here for the third Sunday of Lent. And uh, we find ourselves, um, again, I always like to to situate our, our readings in their broader context. And so um, as many of the gospels are, Luke can be divided up into uh, sections, all right? And today we find ourselves in the uh, central section of Luke's gospel, which scholars will say, is uh, begins at Luke chapter nine, verse 51, and goes all the way to chapter 18, verse 34. Um, In fact, up to this point in our gospel or up to chapter nine, verse 51, I should say the beginning of that central section of Luke's gospel up to that point, Luke's gospel has been following closely Mark's gospel. Okay. This should come as no surprise to us because both Matt, uh, Mark and Luke, well, Matthew as well, but both both Mark and Luke are synoptic gospels, okay? So in large part, they 
they're pretty similar. Um, and so Luke's gospel follows closely Mark's gospel until we get to chapter nine, verse 51. And then it, uh, it veers off, it departs from Mark's narrative only to meet up again with Mark's narrative in the passion narrative. Okay. And so this chapter nine, verse 51 is, is a pretty important section. And it goes, as I said, to chapter 18, verse 34. And uh, we can just note real quick that verse 51 of chapter nine, which is the first verse of this, uh, what scholars will call like the central section of Luke's gospel, that verse sets the tone for the whole central section. So what happens at chapter nine, verse 51 of Luke's gospel, the evangelist tells us that Jesus set his face to go to Jerusalem. Okay. Jesus set his face to go towards Jerusalem. Up to this point, Jesus has been crisscrossing Galilee um, for much of his ministry and been focusing his efforts there. But at uh, chapter 9, verse 51, he's going to set his face to Jerusalem. He's going to begin traveling toward Jerusalem. And in, it's no surprise then that this central section of Luke's gospel, chapter 9, verse 51, through chapter 18, verse 34, is uh, focused on Jerusalem. And this is what we find here in our gospel, Luke chapter 13, verses 1 through 9. Interestingly enough, our gospel here also um, forms the beginning of the heart of the central section. So like we have Luke's gospel as a whole, then we have the central section of Luke's gospel, chapter 9, verse 51 through chapter 18, verse 34. And then within that, in the very center, we have Luke chapter 13 and verses one through nine kicks off the heart of the heart of Luke's gospel, if you will. Okay. So Jesus has set his face to Jerusalem. He's turning his attention to Jerusalem. He shall not be, he shall not be dissuaded from going to Jerusalem because in Jerusalem, he's going to accomplish that for which he was sent. Um, but in Jerusalem, the Lord also wants to, he wants his efforts to bring about fruit, right? And this is kind of the, the, the theme in some ways of our gospel here of Luke chapter 13, verses one through nine. So we find ourselves, again, I always like to situate our gospel if we can, um, in its broader context, we find ourselves at the heart of the heart of Luke's gospel. All right. Jesus setting his face towards Jerusalem and um, it, he's doing that insofar as he, he wants to go there to accomplish his passion, but also Jerusalem is is important to his heart. He wants to redeem Jerusalem, right? He wants to bring about fruit in Jerusalem. And this is a large part of what he is uh, going to address in his, in his gospel here in our, in our uh, pericope. So verse one here, just at the very beginning, it's translated in the revised standard version as saying, there were some present at that very time who told him of the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. Now that first introduction of verse one can also be translated. Some had just arrived. Okay. So that would read some had just arrived who told him of the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. So there's almost like a breaking news um, segment going on here. Right. And this is, this is interesting for our gospel because we are so um, we are so influenced by, um, by current events, especially in the world we live in today with the, the information age and, you know, constant notifications on our cell phones and just uh, up to the minute, uh, up to the second, sometimes it even feels like 
um, news. And so this is an interesting gospel for us because we have Jesus being brought like breaking news and then also himself bringing up like a current event, right? The the tower at Siloam. And how does our Lord address these things? This this can kind of form the, the background of our, our gospel meditation here today. It's not a huge thing that I'm going to dive into, but we can certainly take Luke chapter 13 uh, verses one through nine, or at least uh, verses one through five and ask ourselves, how does the Lord handle breaking news? How does the Lord handle current events? You'll notice that he doesn't seem to be all that um, distressed by them. And uh, no surprise, of course, but we always want to imitate our Lord in everything. And so uh, if he is not distressed by the current events and the breaking news, then neither should we be, okay? So some had just arrived who told him of the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. What is he talking about? Now, nowhere else in extant ancient literature do we give, get an account of this slaying of Galileans by Pilate. However, this episode, this brief description of this episode is actually very consistent with other information that we have about Pontius Pilate. Um, so, for example, we can just briefly look to Philo this ancient testimony, right, of Philo. And he tells us that Pilate was three things. He was inflexible, he was stubborn, and he was cruel, okay? So according to Philo, um, Pontius Pilate was inflexible, stubborn, and cruel. And a couple of... um, of historical events associated with Pontius Pilate that we do have record of confirm this idea of Pilate being inflexible, stubborn, and cruel. What am I talking about? So Pilate at one point used temple funds to construct a 23-mile aqueduct in order to bring water to Jerusalem. Now, you might think that that would make him pretty popular, like an aqueduct that's going to bring water to Jerusalem. But you have to remember, who's in Jerusalem? Jews. And he went in, Pontius Pilate went into the temple and took money from the treasury of the temple that was not meant to be used for public projects. And he just took it and just decided to use it to build an aqueduct. This did not go over very well. Um, and in fact, it, it went over so poorly that the Jews responded by peacefully protesting And then Pontius Pilate responded to that peaceful protest by ordering violence that escalated to the point that many, many more people were killed than was ever likely intended by Pontius Pilate. And many others were actually trampled to death as they were trying to flee this attack of violence on this peaceful protest of Jews. Okay, so Pontius Pilate, inflexible, stubborn, and cruel. Yes, I think think example number one confirms this idea. There's also a story that um, Pontius Pilate ordered an unprovoked uh, attack on Samaritans who were making pilgrimage to Mount Gerizim. So if you're somewhat familiar with the Samaritans, you know that they don't worship in Jerusalem. Um, If you remember back to the story of the woman at the well, she brings up the temple in Jerusalem. And, you know, why do your people say that you have to you have to worship in Jerusalem. And what does Jesus say? He says, the, the, the time is coming when you will worship neither on this mountain nor on uh, another mountain. You will worship in, in spirit and truth. Okay, anyways, side note. So the Samaritans don't um, worship in Jerusalem. They worship on Mount Gerizim. And there's this group of Samaritans who is making pilgrimage to Mount Gerizim. 
And all we know is that they did not provoke any sort of attack, and yet Pontius Pilate uh, launches an attack on them. And this this attack was considered so uh, so heinous and so so uh, again unprovoked that uh, it actually led to Pontius Pilate's being deposed from um, from his role as uh, as procurator over uh, over Judea. Okay, so um, again, inflexible, stubborn, and cruel. Check, check, check. And so, again, though we don't have any extant, um, other extant uh, witnesses to the slain of Galileans by Pontius Pilate, it's certainly consistent with uh, with what we do know about uh, about Pontius Pilate. Um, so, what exactly, uh, what exactly is going on here? It says that um, that Jesus is told that these Galileans whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. So we already touched on how this is consistent with the character of Pontius Pilate that we receive from um, uh, the, the, the testimony of other ancient sources, but what, what, is, what are they actually talking about? Galileans whose blood Pilate mingled with their sacrifices. Well, it was the duty of the Jewish priests to gather and to pour out the blood of animals that were slain on the altar. But the actual act of slaughtering that animal was the responsibility of the person who offered the animal, okay? So the priests were obviously present in the temple and they were um, presiding over sacrifice, you might say, but their duty was merely to collect and to pour out the blood of the animals who had been sacrificed upon the altar. It was the job of the person who brought the animal for sacrifice to also to, to actually be the one to do the slaughtering of the animal. Okay. And so what is the implication here? It appears that these Galileans who had made pilgrimage to Jerusalem in order to offer sacrifice were likely in the act of offering sacrifice, the sacrifice that they had brought and were murdered by Pontius Pilate. Okay. Such that their blood ended up being mingled with the blood of their sacrifice. Okay. It's really kind of heinous, but again, not not all that uh, all that off from the descriptors that the descriptors that we have of Pontius Pilate. Um, why why did he do this? Oh, who knows? Who knows? Right? But Cyril of Alexandria, one of the church fathers, has an interesting suggestion. He suggests that perhaps Pilate had asked these men making sacrifice to make some sacrifice on behalf of either himself or on behalf of the emperor or on behalf of the Roman people, which this was not entirely unusual. Okay. It was not unusual for the Roman authorities to have some level of deference for the local um, cult, the local gods over which they, um, uh, over which they were politically reigning by um, uh, having some sort of deference by sometimes requesting that sacrifice be made on their behalf. Okay. So this is not an entirely unusual idea. So Cyril of Alexandria proposes the idea that perhaps Pilate had asked for this um, sort of favor that the Galileans would offer sacrifice on behalf of, you know, himself or the, the emperor or the Roman people. And perhaps the Galileans refused because, um, sacrifice of this kind was not accounted for in the law of Moses. This is Cyril of Alexandria's proposal. It's an interesting idea. I have no idea if there's, there's any other 
backing for that. Although I will say that if anyone was going to cooperate with, uh, the Roman authorities in this matter, it probably would not be Galileans, or I should say that it probably would be Judeans, people from the South, people in Jerusalem, because it was the people in Jerusalem, especially the priests in Jerusalem, not all of them, but many of the priests in Jerusalem were in the pocket of the Roman Empire, and um, they enjoyed being in favor um, uh with the Romans. And so you could potentially see with Cyril's uh, proposal, it's kind of making sense that it's the Galileans who perhaps would refuse over Judeans who uh, Pontius Pilate perhaps was used to Judeans complying with his request. Who knows? But it's an interesting proposal that Cyril of Alexandria makes. And um, it certainly would account for this kind of weird story that uh, our Lord is given here in the beginning of our gospel. So we can just go with it and say that the Galileans uh, upset Pontius Pilate somehow such that their their um, slaughter was ordered and they themselves being in the act of making sacrifice, their blood was mingled with the sacrifice, with the blood of their own sacrifice. Okay, so we get this really kind of jarring image. Um, Jesus responds, well, he responds with a a bit of a a theological commentary on the situation, but then he brings up, um, another current event. Um, so it appears, and we're going to look into that briefly here for a moment before we address our Lord's, um, kind of theological or spiritual response as a whole. So what does Jesus say? He brings up the 18, uh, who are crushed by the tower of Siloam. This starts at verse four. Were those 18 upon whom the tower in Siloam fell and killed them? Do you think that they were worse offenders than all the others who dwelt in Jerusalem? I tell you, no, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Okay, so let's talk about this current event. What do we have going on here? Again, it appears that there's no other um, extant um, witness of this, but, you know, um, we are very used to we are very used to accidents like this happening periodically. Um, what can we what can we glean? How can we how can we um, orient ourselves a little bit more, placing ourselves in the shoe of, of first century Jews who had this experience? Where is Siloam? Siloam is a neighborhood in Jerusalem. Okay, just like um, you know. New York City has its boroughs or other um, cities have their little neighborhoods. Jerusalem has little neighborhoods as well. So Siloam is a neighborhood in Jerusalem and not surprisingly, it's um, in the area of the pool of Siloam, okay, which is in the southeast corner of the city of Jerusalem. And it's right near one of the main gates um, into the city of Jerusalem. And it's right next to one of the main thoroughfares that goes up to the temple. So um, it was not unusual for a large, uh, a large amount of people coming on pilgrimage to Jerusalem to enter Jerusalem near the pool of Siloam at this southeast corner of the city of Jerusalem, and then actually enter the pool of Siloam and Siloam and bathe themselves there. Um, remember, uh, if you've uh, familiar, remember from other podcasts, it was really important for the Jews to um, ritually purify themselves, um, especially when they are coming into the holy city of Jerusalem. So it's not surprising that we have a ritual bath right at one of the main gates coming into the city of Jerusalem. It's also not surprising that it was 
a big bath. Okay. It's essentially a, a like essentially like a, a swimming pool, like that size of a, of a bath. Okay. So that large amounts of people who were entering the city through the gate near Siloam could enter into this ritual pool, bathe themselves, and then just take the main thoroughfare north up to um, the south side of the temple where the main entryways into the Jerusalem temple were located. Okay. So you'd come into the city from the South Southeast, you'd bathe at the pool of Siloam, and then you'd um, get back on the main thoroughfare heading straight North. So you're going up like direction wise, but you're also going up. um, um, uh, What's the word I'm looking for? You're going up. Uh, I keep on wanting to say geographically, but you guys know what I'm talking about. Uh, Elevation. Thank you. (laughs) I'm thanking myself and my brain for coming up with that word. So you're going up like North geographically, but you're also going up elevation wise. Okay. Cause the pool of Siloam is, is pretty low. Um, and, um, the Jerusalem temple sits at like, like the highest point of the city of Jerusalem. Okay. So You'd head north, you'd head up, and you'd get to the south side of the temple where the main entryways into, the main doors into the Jerusalem temple were. Okay, so just, just you know, in some ways people, some people would be like, that was totally irrelevant information for me, Katie. And I appreciate people like you because you just need the basics. And so if I just bored you for two minutes, I apologize. But I am one of those people that is fascinated by these little details, clearly, because I'm always giving them to you. So hopefully you don't mind. So Siloam, okay, it's this neighborhood on the in the southeast um, area of Jerusalem. And Josephus tells us, um, he records that there is a juncture in the city walls above the, quote, fountain of Siloam. So a juncture in the city walls near the fountain of Siloam, probably just another way of saying the pool of Siloam. And it was not unusual in ancient city walls that where there was a juncture, like a coming together of the city walls for there to be a tower. Okay. We don't know that for sure, but it wouldn't be any surprise that somewhere near the pool of Siloam where the city walls came together, there was a tower. And it's probably a tower like this that our Lord is referring to that collapsed and fell and killed 18 people. And it wouldn't have been any surprise if these 18 people were not even from Jerusalem. If they were people who had just joyfully come up to Jerusalem on pilgrimage to make sacrifice to the Lord. And when they're on their pilgrimage uh, slash vacation, they have this horrible tragedy come upon them where this this tower near this ritual bathing pool falls upon them and kills uh, a dozen and a half of them. Okay, it's it's pretty tragic, right? So our Lord brings that up. He brings up that current event. And what does he do? He responds to that current event in the same way that he responds to the other current event, the breaking news, right? The Galileans whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices and the 18 who were crushed by the tower that fell on them in Siloam. How does he respond? Well, it appears that our Lord can read something in the hearts of the people who are bringing him this news because he responds to um, a particular idea that has not actually been conveyed. And the idea is this, that our Lord seems to recognize in their hearts a belief that tragedy besets people who are of some sinfulness, okay? And this idea is consistent with Jewish thought. So Jewish theology, as one Bible scholar says, as a rule, 
ascribes suffering to prior sin and guilt. I'll repeat that. Jewish theology, as a rule, ascribes suffering to prior sin and guilt. Okay, so our Lord seems to be recognizing in the hearts of the the bearers of bad news that there is a sense that, you know, oh, look, like, thank goodness I'm more righteous than those people because I wasn't murdered by Pontius Pilate and I didn't have a tower tragically fall and crush me, fall upon me and crush me when I was on my pilgrimage, right? But Jesus addresses it and he says, uh, he says, do you think that they were worse sinners than others because they suffered thus? I tell you, no, they were not worse sinners, but... Unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. And then he says the same thing about those crushed by the tower in Siloam. He says, do you think that they were worse offenders than the others who dwelt in Jerusalem? I tell you, no, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. So Jesus is, is using the, the breaking news and the current events, the tragic current events of the time to, uh, to bring into question that commonly held Jewish belief, that, that common rule uh, that ascribes suffering to prior sin and guilt. And this is a smart tactic on the part of our Lord. I always feel a little patronizing when I call Jesus smart because, of course, he's really smart way smarter than I will ever be. But anyways, he's, he's very wise and discerning. Okay. We can still compliment our Lord, even though it's kind of like an ant complimenting me on something silly. Um, but our Lord is, is using this, this situation and the, the emotions that come from the experience of tragedy to spur in many ways, what you could call self-preservation, right? Because what they're focused on, it seems, is, is the tragedy of loss of life. And what that often spurs on is a desire for self-preservation, right? So, you know, everybody after COVID decided they're going to have a home garden because they realized how, um, you know, how uh, you could run out of food very easily in our global uh, economy, right? And... Uh, these tragedies, I can you can think of many other examples in your own life, I'm sure, but these tragedies um, cause us to to think about what I could do per, to prevent that from happening to me, right? But what is Jesus saying? He's reorienting their mindset. He's not saying don't do that, but he's saying don't do that in the temporal matter. Um, do that in the eternal matter, right? So the the temporal side of us, has us go, oh my gosh, um, human tragedy can befall me. What can I do to prevent that from happening? And that's not always a bad thing, but if we don't at the same time give attention to the eternal ramifications, like I am going to die one day and is my eternal salvation worked out? What is the point of paying attention to tragedies and gleaning, um, gleaning um, some good effect from tragedies, right? There's, there's some people who say never waste a good, never waste a good, I I don't know if they say never waste a good tragedy, but um, never waste, you know, a good, 
bad thing. There's always some, some positive that can come from it. And, and we can recognize that, right? But the most positive thing that should come out of these kind of tragic situations when we realize the futility of our actions and, um, and, and uh, how life is so fleeting, um, the most prosperous thing that could come out of that is a, a look to eternity and a desire to put into order our salvation, okay? And this is where Jesus is turning their attention to. And um, he refers to the tragedy that will befall them uh, as well. So he says, you know, he says, no, it did not happen to them because they were worse sinners. But if you don't repent, you will likewise perish. Okay, a, a tragedy will likewise come upon you. And what is this tragedy? Jesus continues on at verse six, and it seems that he's describing the tragedy that will indeed befall them. Maybe Pontius Pilate won't murder them and maybe a tower won't tragically crush them but a, a tragedy will befall them if they do not repent. And what is that tragedy? It's the tragedy of the fig tree, okay? He told them this parable, a man had a fig tree planted in his vineyard and he came seeking fruit on it and found none. He said to the vine dresser, lo, these three years I have come seeking fruit on this fig tree and I find none. Cut it down. Why should it use up the ground? But the vine dresser answered, let it alone, sir, this year also till I dig about it and fertilize it. And if it bears fruit next year, well and good. But if not, you can cut it down. So what would the tragedy be, right? It would be the tragedy of the fig tree that does not bear fruit. And uh, any, any good vineyard owner is not going to sit there and watch a dead tree just take up a uh, good space and good soil. He's going to replace it with another tree. That's going to make good use of all the nutrition and, and love and attention, if you will, that the vine dresser is going to offer. And so this is the tragedy, the tragedy of the fig tree that Jesus offers them. Now let's look to the old Testament briefly because figs are associated with judgment all throughout the old Testament. So we can look in a handful of different places to to see this. Um, Isaiah chapter 34, verse four, all the hosts of heaven shall rot away and the skies roll up like a scroll. All their hosts shall fall as leaves fall from the vine, like leaves falling from the fig tree. Okay. Jeremiah chapter 29, verse 17, thus says the Lord of hosts, behold, I am sending on them sword, famine, and pestilence, and I will make them like vile figs, which are so bad they cannot be eaten. Hosea chapter two, verse 12, and I will lay waste her vines and her fig trees of which she said, these are my hire, which my lovers have given me. Also Hosea uh, chapter nine, verse 10, like grapes in the wilderness, I found Israel like the first fruit on the fig tree in its first season. I saw your father's. Joel chapter one, verse seven, it has laid waste my vines and splintered my fig trees. And finally, Micah chapter seven, verse one, woe is me for I have become as when the summer fruit has been gathered as when the vintage has been gleaned. There is no cluster to eat, no first ripe fig, which my soul desires. All right. So what do we have? Like six quotes there uh, right off the bat from the Old Testament, connecting the image of the fig tree with judgment. And interestingly enough, we can even go all the way back to the beginning of the Old Testament to Genesis, right? And if you recall, 
um, Adam and Eve uh, sin, they become aware of their their nakedness and they clothe themselves with leaves from a fig tree. Okay, interesting. Jesus himself, so Jesus offers this parable of the fruitless fig tree, right, here in Luke chapter 13. But there's another story of a fruitless fig tree in the Gospels, and it's a real life story, right? It's not a parable. It's real life. So at both Matthew 21 and Mark 11, we hear um, Jesus encountering this fig tree by the wayside. He goes to it in order to get fruit from it and recognizes that it has no fruit. And what does he do? He curses the fig tree and it withers. Whoa. <laughs> Uh, if that's not an image of judgment, I don't know what is. Okay, so all throughout the Old Testament and even in the Gospels themselves, fig trees are associated with judgment, okay? So let's look a little bit closer at our, our short parable here. So this man has a fig tree that he planted in his vineyard. He's come seeking fruit on it, and he's come for the last three years seeking fruit from the fig tree, but he finds none. All throughout those three years, he finds none. And so he tells uh, the vine dresser to cut it down, but the vine dresser says, no, give me one more chance. And honestly, he's not even saying give me one more chance. He's saying, give the tree one more chance, uh, one more chance. I'm going to dig about it. And, um, the RSV, you probably could tell when I first read it, um, says I'm going to dig about it and put manure on it. The new American Bible puts it a little more subtly. He says, we're going to fertilize around the tree. I love that. But I'm pretty sure the original Greek is actually just like straight up. He's going to put manure around it. Maybe even some places they translate it dung. Okay. But we can, we can be a little bit, um, we can be a little bit softer and say that the vine dresser is going to, he's going to cultivate the land. I think that's what the new American Bible says. He's going to cultivate it and he's going to fertilize it. Okay. And then if it bears fruit next year, awesome. But if not, then you can cut it down. That's what the deal that the vine dresser makes with the owner of the vineyard. Okay. What is going on here? Well, some people think it's fascinating that the, the, owner of the vineyard has come for three years and has been seeking fruit, but has not found fruit on the fig tree. Why? Because Jesus had uh, his ministry that lasted three years as well. Okay. And his ministry is winding down, right? He set his face to Jerusalem and this is the the last chance, if you will. Okay. And the, the other interesting parallel, if we continue kind of drawing this parallel is that the, the last chance is in many ways associated with the cross. So we're going to take a few seconds to connect the dots, but we're going to get there. Um, I'm going to pull in here um, James Edwards, who is a Bible scholar, and he has this to say, quote, the gardener wants the tree to live and bear fruit, and he makes the more costly choice to allow for this possibility. Let me read that again. The gardener wants the tree to live and bear fruit, and he makes the more costly choice to allow for the possibility, okay? Right, so it would make more economical sense probably to just cut the tree down and plant a new one. But what James Edwards is saying is that the gardener, and, and this is also fascinating to consider, right? Because like, who is the first gardener? Adam. And who is the new gardener? Jesus. Who is Jesus um, confused for, mistaken for in, uh, in uh, his resurrection? He's mistaken for the gardener. Okay. So there's all this, these really subtle connections with the Lord. Um, 
in this this gardener is instead of just starting over he's going to he's going to give it one last chance and in giving it one last chance he's going to make the costlier choice to allow for the possibility of fruit, right? And what is that costlier choice that our Lord is going to make? Well, in many ways, we can say it's the costlier choice for which he's going to Jerusalem altogether, right? It's the costlier choice of the cross. It's the costlier choice of redemption. I'll bring in Cyril of Alexandria here for a second because he notes um, he notes this interesting idea. He notes that, um, the the bearers of bad news bring the story of the Galileans whose blood has been mingled with their sacrifices. And Cyril of Alexandria notes that Jesus says, if you do not uh, repent, you will likewise perish. In other words, Cyril, Cyril of Alexandria notes that what Jesus appears to be saying is, hey, if you don't repent, your blood also is going to be mingled with your sacrifice. Okay, so that's what Cyril of Alexandria says. Now, here's where I come in and so I have much less authority. So you can take this or leave this. But that if we follow this line of thought of like the outcome of non-repentance being blood mingled with sacrifices, or at very least, if we if we really note a theme that could be going on here, and we've already brought in how Jesus is the good, the gardener, he is the vine dresser, he is the good gardener who chooses the costlier choice. What do we have at Jesus's passion, right? At Jesus's passion, we have a blood mingled with sacrifice, okay? This fascinating idea because what is Jesus, but he is both priest and victim, okay? And so, um, Jesus's blood is so perfectly, if you will, mingled with his sacrifice that his sacrifice is quite literally his blood itself. Okay, let's keep uh, let's keep bringing in um, connection possibilities here. So that's that's one connection possibility, if you will, which fits with this idea of the costlier choice to allow for the the cultivation of fruit, right? But what else is going on here? So Jesus um, seems to say, according to Cyril of Alexandria that um, the the same thing will befall those who do not repent. In other, words, in other words, the mingling of blood and sacrifice, okay? So what happens when, when we make sacrifice without that sacrifice actually having effect on our uh, eternal salvation? That means that our life is going to be mingled with our sacrifice. Like our, our life is not going to be saved by our sacrifice, right? Again, I'll say that again. So what happens if our external sacrifices do not make a difference uh, to our eternal salvation? Like they don't, they don't impact our eternal salvation. In other words, we just offer sacrifice to cover our sins without actually repenting for our sins. What's going to happen? Our sacrifices are not going to save us. And, and then indeed, we're going to have the same, um, the same tragedy befall us of losing our our life, even in the very act of making sacrifice, this idea of blood mingled with sacrifice. Okay, what's another connection that's really fascinating going on here? Well, if we think about what it means to allow the Lord to uh, cultivate our lives, if we think about what it means for our sacrifice to actually contribute to our salvation, so like, so like um, our exterior sacrifice actually manifesting interior sacrifice, right? Which needs to be a very important thing 
during Lent, what does that cooperation end up looking like? It ends up looking like self-sacrifice, okay? So when we do sacrifice, say, for example, during Lent, what is it supposed to signify? Or what is it supposed to manifest? It's supposed to manifest the me laying down my very life, me laying down my will, me laying down those, those idols that I have, um, those attachments that I have, okay? And in that way, that sacrifice is actually going to help bring about my salvation because it's gonna dispose me to receive the free gift of salvation from God, okay? And so true exterior sacrifice is always linked to interior sacrifice. And so interestingly enough, there's a way in which successfully allowing the master gardener to cultivate us means allowing our quote-unquote blood to be mingled with our quote-unquote sacrifices. Let me draw in another Old Testament idea to hopefully parse this out a little bit more for you. So if we go back to, for example, the book of Daniel, when the Jewish people found themselves in exile um, outside of the land of Israel, they had this big pressing theological question. And the question was this, how do we worship when we don't have the temple? Because all of worship centered around the temple and the temple sacrifice, right? And so Daniel and his buddies are trying to wrestle with this question. How do we worship the Lord when we can't go to the temple and offer sacrifice? And if we can't go to the temple and offer sacrifice, we can't offer sacrifice at all because we can only offer sacrifice in the temple. What is the conclusion that Daniel and his friends draw? The conclusion that's drawn from this time period that's fascinating for our study is a conclusion that in times when we are in exile, the only proper way to offer sacrifice is to offer self-sacrifice. This is why in the book of Daniel, you read about Daniel and his friends fasting, okay? Because they are offering themselves, unable to offer goats and lambs and birds, right? In the Jerusalem temple, they decide they're gonna offer themselves. And this then becomes a model for the Christian life in the new exile, right? Upon when we, when we are in the, the church uh, that's uh, on, on the earth, right? Traveling, pilgrimaging towards our final destination. We are in exile and we find our sacrifice in exile is uh, the sacrifice of ourselves. Okay. So, so if Jesus's costly choice is indeed the mingling of his blood and his sacrifice, then our, uh, our acceptance of that cultivation, our docility to his cultivating the land around us and to his fertilizing the land around us, uh, that docility, that openness manifests itself in our own blood being mingled with sacrifices, right? Our own exterior sacrifices manifesting our interior sacrifice, our own uh, self-sacrifice becoming evident, okay? And this makes total sense because we are just called to follow Jesus in his own sacrifice, to follow Jesus to the cross. And so our Lord was himself, both the priest and the victim. And so he gives us the ability to also be priest and victim, to lay down our very lives in sacrifice to the Lord God Almighty. This is how we save are saved. This is how this is how we uh, this is how we repent. Okay, of our sinfulness. Um, this is how we 
uh, prevent the greater tragedy from befalling us? Because is it not the truth, friends, that we have ourselves in many ways convinced that the greater tragedy would be being murdered by Pontius Pilate or the greater tragedy would be having a tower crush me, okay? Versus losing my eternal salvation. There are so many times when we are more horrified by the loss of earthly life than we are by the loss of eternal life, temporal life versus everlasting life. Okay, and this gives us pause. And this is what Jesus is facilitating for the people who are listening. A little pause, okay, to go, hmm, are my priorities straight here? Do I recognize that if I do not repent of my sinfulness, I will have a likewise tragedy befall me? And in many ways, a worse tragedy befall me. That tragedy of being the fig tree, though I have been cultivated and fertilized by the master gardener who has chosen the costlier choice of preserving me and and putting time and energy into, into me, right? What is the, spiritually speaking, what is the fertilizer that he that he places around our roots, right? It's his very life. It's his precious blood flowing from the cross, right? And if I, if I do not open myself to that and allow the master gardener to bring forth fruit on me, the fig tree, then I will be cut down and I will be lost. And this is a real and true reality. And friends, this is in many ways the reason why Jesus in his church gives us the beautiful season of Lent so that we can put first things first and we can uh, recognize what is of most importance and what is of lesser importance. Sure, when we encounter tragedies of the human variety, right, the the temporal variety, it's it's good, especially if we have a family to ask ourselves, how can I keep my me and my family safe from this tragedy? But more than that, we need to be reminded that human life is fleeting. And we need to ask ourselves, am I doing everything I can to preserve my eternal life as Jesus himself did everything he could to preserve my life? Am I putting in just as much time and effort as the master did to cultivate fruit in my life? This is a source of examination for us, especially in this Lenten season. And so we pray for the Holy Spirit to come upon us, to convict us in our needs, in our laziness, in our apathy, and to help us to not not cast off the tremendous graces, the fertilizer of Jesus's precious blood and his tremendous love, that affection of the master garden who indeed can bring forth fruit from a tree that even appears to be dead. That is the miracle of God's life and his precious blood. Let us us never uh, take that for granted. 